Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is The Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic Hark now hear the sailors The Mystic cry. Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. Through the summer months, I'm offering something a little lighter than our usual fare. This is because I need to take a break from producing a weekly program, and because you might enjoy some summertime storytelling to take with you onto the back deck or out on a road trip. Each week, I'll be reading from How the Light Gets In, a collection of my short stories published by the Anglican Book Centre back in 1999. Despite my urge to do some major rewriting, I've tried to leave these stories pretty much as they were, except where I couldn't help myself. I'll release two stories a week, one on Sunday and one on Thursday. If you don't want to miss a story... Be sure to subscribe on whatever format you use for your podcasts. And while you're at it, give the podcast a rating. That helps spread the word. I hope you enjoy these homespun tales as we all take our summer sun. The Return of William Trelawney Today on the Church calendar is the Feast of the Baptism of Our Lord. To honor the day in my church we had a baptism of our own, though I doubt it bore much resemblance to that biblical event so long ago. For one thing, the baptizees kept their clothes on. For another, we had people who didn't want to be there. Friends and relatives of the candidates who pouted their way through the service as if I were some junior high school teacher making extreme and unusual demands upon them, like that they actually participate in the service. Sullenly, they sat, staring back at me, daring me to come down there and ream them out. I was tempted. In Jesus' day, they wouldn't have had it so good. There would not likely have been pews, for instance— or orders of service with helpful page references and with little cartoon announcements to make it easier for children to follow along. I doubt there would have been greeters or welcome cards or friendly opening remarks from John the Baptist or accommodating photo opportunities around the font afterwards. There was just sun and heat and crowds. There was water, of course, and then the wilderness. It makes it a little hard to understand why Jesus would have put himself through it. It was not as if he needed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as the Gospel of Mark describes it. He was already perfect. Did his mom push him into it? Kind of like confirmation these many years later? Come on now, Jesus, you've been moping around this house long enough. A little water never hurt anybody. 
All your friends are going down there. Do you want to be the only one not baptized? Or was it one of those things you do, not because it makes much rational sense, but because it feels suddenly necessary, even urgent? Like a groom on his way to his own wedding, who can't resist the urge to drive out one last time past his old childhood home. There he pulls over to the curb, just to sit a while. He does this only half-thinking, as if he is trying to retrieve something, to remember something. Then he takes a deep breath, puts the car in gear, and moves off into the rest of his life. Anyway, it put me in mind of the return of William Trelawney a few years ago to St. Jude's, the rural parish I served when I was newly ordained and fresh out of college. Father David is there now, of course, and has been since I left— Father David is the age of the sons and daughters of most of his parishioners, sons and daughters who have grown up and moved away, so father is an honorary title more than a descriptive one. He insists upon it nonetheless. To their credit, having trained many young clergy over the years, me included, the congregation respects his wishes, but with a knowing smile that makes him feel even younger than he is. How well I recall that smile. St. Jude's stands in the middle of a forked intersection as you head east of town, a resolute symbol of the Anglican Middle Way. One road takes you northward through rolling countryside past dairy farms and woodlots in a huge loop that, if you stay on the paved sections, eventually leads you out past Holy Family Catholic Church high atop a Gorman Hill and then back into town from the west. The other road takes you southward to the highway and on to the city. This is the route most people are looking for. One year, the notice board on the front lawn read, A church for those who don't know which way to turn. I guess we intended these as words of comfort for out-of-towners who were just trying to find their way home, but who got caught instead on that northern loop, bringing them right back to the same spot. Just once, they likely said to themselves, it would be helpful if the church took a stand on something and actually pointed the way. William Trelawney found his way back to St. Jude's easily enough, though it had been maybe 30 years since he'd left. He had grown up here, an only child to parents who lived in a rented house out on the Twelfth Line. William, and it was always William, never Willie or Bill, was skinny and shy and never hung around with the other kids his age. He got off the school bus at the end of the week, and no one saw him again till Monday. The family made no effort to socialize, keeping to themselves, and William didn't play hockey in the winter, and they didn't go to church. But William had a gift, an achingly beautiful soprano voice. It was Miss Harkness, his fourth-grade teacher, who coaxed it out of him, and then got him to join the choir at St. Jude's, where she herself sang. Thereafter, every Christmas Eve in the glow of the candlelight procession, his clear solo voice would lead off the midnight service with the first verse of Once in Royal David City. This soon became a Christmas tradition all its own. A deep hush would settle over the congregation as people closed their eyes and listened to that sweet, unearthly sound, so close to them there in the darkness, and yet so strangely distant, like the voice of an angel. 
Tears would appear on flushed cheeks and glisten like tiny stars in the flickering candlelight. For some, it was precisely in those still moments, after all the baking and sewing and shopping, after the working days and the shrinking dollar, that the Christ child would come to them again. For years after William's voice broke and the family moved away, people would talk about that boy with the golden voice, usually at Christmas time when some new child would be given that solo part, a part at which they were destined to fail. People would say, that was really nice this year, but you know, I can still hear that Trelawney kid clear as a bell. Now that kid could sing. The Trelawney kid had so entered the town's oral history that no one thought of him as having grown up. So when a tall man with a graying beard pulled up to the church in an old Volvo station wagon just before service time one Sunday, people gave him the once-over side glance they reserve for city folk and other strangers. He walked with a slight stoop, suggesting a taller frame than he would have chosen for himself. His eyes were dark, and his face was deeply lined, which made him a little frightening, except that his gaze seemed to be turned inward like a man preoccupied. When he looked at you, it was with surprise, as if you had suddenly materialized out of nowhere in front of him. That's what Earl felt anyway as he handed him a prayer book at the door. The stranger took a seat in the back pew. Father David noticed him right away. When you have a congregation of 35 on a good Sunday, a visitor tends to stand out, especially a tall one, and there had not been many visitors lately. Father David kept his eye on this newcomer who sat by himself and didn't look up the whole time. At the offertory hymn, he stood with the rest, the hymn book open in his hand, but he didn't join in the singing. Following the service, Father David was distracted as he shook hands at the door. He kept peering down the line of parishioners for the stranger to appear. Good morning, Father David. Good morning, Keith. What cold hands you have this morning. Yes, Mrs. Bailey, but you know what they say. Nice service there, Father. Thank you. Um, sorry, Harry, but did you mean sermon? No, I meant service. Good day now. He shook the last hand and wandered back into the church. Did he go out by the sanctuary door or down to the church hall? Father David made his way back up the aisle. Mrs. Good, the organist, was packing up her music. You have a visitor, she whispered, cocking her head in the direction of the vestry. Father David saw the stranger's tall frame just inside the door. Hello, Father David called out. He approached the stranger and held out his hand. It was an awkward exchange right in the doorway so that the stranger had to back into the vestry to allow Father David to enter, bringing them into too close a proximity for two men who had just met. Father David squeezed past him, averting his eyes until he got around to the other side of his desk. The stranger seemed to be preparing his thoughts. Father David invited him to sit down. Then he waited. You don't know me, the man said, sitting forward on the chair across from the desk. But I used to come to this church. I used to sing in the choir. Really, Father David said. That's lovely. Again, he found himself waiting. So, he tried, uh, where are you now? I I'm in the city. I'm at the university. Ah, said Father David, as he began nodding his head as if contemplating the depths of this new information. So, what brings you back now? Do you have family here? he asked, still nodding. No, 
the stranger replied. The truth is, I want to be baptized. He said this and smiled as he looked up at Father David, making eye contact for the first time. Father David was taken aback. He might have considered he was on the brink of hearing some dark confession. He might even have expected a pitch for a handout. But baptism? This would not have crossed his mind. Not that the notion of adult baptism was the least bit foreign to Father David. He had once written a masterful academic paper on the subject. Adult baptism, he had said, was to be the way of the future as whole generations of unbaptized adults would find their way back to church. He had argued that in preparation for this eventuality, baptismal tanks should reappear in mainline churches and full immersion should once again become the norm for Christian baptism. It was a bold assertion, but he had put forward his case and had stood his ground, though no church, to his knowledge, had taken him up on the idea. Now, all he could think to say was, Isn't this a little out of your way? Word spread quickly that William Trelawney had returned. In fact, there was quite a buzz about town leading up to the baptism three weeks later, a day that had already been set aside for the baptism of the Trundle twins, Tara and Tiffany. The church was half full and there was tangible excitement in the air, a sense of anticipation that had been missing that whole fall season. The twins were a handful, slipping around in their matching satin christening gowns, but it seemed to be their mother, Daphne, who was the problem. Fussing continually, she passed them back and forth between their father and her sister, the godmother, whispering loud commands to each. This was to have been her daughter's occasion, having personally booked it with the reverend two months ago. She'd been up late the night before, finishing the gowns, and had prepared a cold buffet that was waiting for them at home. Meanwhile, her husband Tim had chosen that morning to begin an oil change on the truck, until she hauled him in to wash up and get ready himself. He sat beside her awkwardly now, his tie askew, his blackened hands struggling to contain the squirming twosome. The girls continued to squirm right through their baptism— Daphne tried to smile through her annoyance as a candle was lit for each child. Receive the light of Christ, Father David said as he handed the candles to the godmother, who couldn't find a place to put her prayer book, so she tucked it in her armpit, to show that you have passed from darkness to light. After the Trundle twins had been done, it was William Trelawney's turn. He moved slowly forward from the front pew and stood by the font. People craned their necks, trying to make out any resemblance between this dark, weary man and the high, angelic voice that rang so clearly in their memories. William bent forward and lowered his head as Father David raised the baptismal shell. William John, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The water ran down his forehead, collecting at the end of his nose. It ran onto his beard and dripped down onto his tie. As Father David reached for the chrism, William raised his face. His eyes were closed, his brow arched in anticipation of the young priest's touch on his forehead. The morning sun shone down upon him through the baptistry window. Bathed in its warm glow, his face suddenly became that of a ten-year-old child, expectant and trusting. It was a truly remarkable transformation. Gone were the deep lines. Gone was the dark gaze. 
and it was in that instant that they recognized him. At the end of the service, as Father David was reading the announcements, a strange thing happened, at least strange for St. Jude's. He was interrupted. He looked up. Wilf Smith was standing in his pew. I was just saying or, or wondering if perhaps Mr. Trelawney here might like to honor us with a song, as many of us remember him singing from when he was a boy. Father David didn't know what to say. Mr. Trelawney looked down at his hands. A smile spread across his face. Looking around from the front pew, he nodded his agreement. An excited murmur rippled through the congregation. Father David, trying to appear gracious and not at all sidelined, returned to his prayer desk and sat down. Mr. Trelawney got up and spoke quietly to Mrs. Good. Why, of course I do, she beamed, digging into her bag and pulling out a dog-eared music book. He took his position at the top of the chancel steps, a little off to the side. Mrs. Good began. Suddenly, the church was filled with William Trelawney's rich, baritone voice. He had chosen the Lord's Prayer in a familiar setting that he had sung here as a soloist as a boy. Mrs. Good focused intensely on the music before her, began swaying on the organ bench. It was not like her to express emotion of any kind, let alone rapture. The congregation sat transfixed, barely breathing, until with the rising crescendo of the final cadence he came to the end. Only then, in the hush that followed, did some move a hand to wipe away a tear. They never saw William Trelawney again. There was a reception down in the church hall after the service, and people spoke with him. They said later that he seemed kind and courteous. But then someone asked where he was, and he had gone. A middle-aged man on his way to somewhere, coming back to remember who he was. And when that fog on blows I will be coming home And when that fog on blows I wanna hear it I don't wanna fear it And I wanna rock your gypsy soul I've been reading from my book how the Light Gets In, a collection of short stories. I'll be rolling out two stories a week in the Mystic Cave through the summer months, and then returning to an interview format come the fall, when we'll be turning our attention to views of death and dying on the other side of Churchland. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too late.